everyone. Uh, we had a great podcast last night. We had Michael Goldberg on. Um, he is a venture capitalist, works in um, tech, has had a great career going from, you know, as you'll hear in the pod, South Africa all the way through, you know, the VC route. And then now it's the executive director um, of entrepreneurship at Case Western uh, University out here in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, really, really had a great conversation and really got to pick his brain. And you're, you're going to hear, you know, if you're interested in creating your own startup and seeing what all it takes to get it funded, you're going to be able to hear from someone that funds businesses. So it's a little bit of change um, from what we've had. Uh, and so without you know further ado, you're going to hear um, Michael Goldberg. As always, this podcast is presented to you by American Express. Don't do business without it. Without further ado, Michael Goldberg. All right. Hey, everyone. We are taping this here on a Friday afternoon. Uh, we have the pleasure of having Michael Goldberg on here today. Uh, he is the executive director of entrepreneurship at Case Western, and he has a great view of venture capital and entrepreneurship. So really looking forward to having him on. Michael, without further ado, thanks for doing this, hopping on with us today. My pleasure. It is great. Great to be here. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to uh, hearing some of your expertise. Uh, I guess but as to get started here, what really got you into, you know, not just entrepreneurship, but the world of venture capital? Um, I know you uh, take a lot of part in, you know, different companies from all over the world. So like what kind of got you into that sphere? Sure. Yeah, I can give you a little bit of my origin story. Probably like many entrepreneurs, it's not quite a straight line, um, a bit jagged in kind of hopefully a good way, a good-ish way. Um, and I'm from the Cleveland area. I grew up here and after um, kind of heading off to college, I studied international relations at Princeton. I spent um, three years living in South Africa working for a nonprofit. I, I taught for a year in a rural black school and then ran voter education programs in advance of the elections. And that I'd always been interested in international markets, but sort of spending three years um, in South Africa. I did some other work in Southern Africa, um, outside of South Africa, uh, worked on the elections program in Mozambique, South Africa's first democratic elections, national elections in 1994, and then local elections in 95. Um, I really enjoyed engaging um, at a local level with folks. And even though it was working for a nonprofit or an NGO, there's something, there's something very entrepreneurial about it. It was like super unstructured and kind of wild and interesting time to be living and, and engaging in South Africa. Um, when I came back to the U.S., I did my MBA at Wharton and a master's in international affairs at Johns Hopkins. I honestly like didn't know what I wanted to do next. Um, it was interesting timing to be coming out of grad school because the sort of first internet wave was happening and I ended up getting a job um, first as a summer intern at Microsoft working on actually their it was like the precursor to Xbox. It was called the Internet Gaming Zone. Oh, wow. Um, way, way back in the day. And then um, I got a job at AOL, America Online, um, which, you know, a lot of my students have never heard of AOL <laughs> or never, never 
use the internet on a phone line. And uh, although probably some of their parents did or grandparents. So yeah, it was like very interesting time. This is before we ended up um, merging with Time Warner. It was, um, you know, one of the biggest mergers of its time. It, it ended up being a huge loss of shareholder value, um, particularly for the Time Warner shareholders that gave up, you know, over half their company to AOL. But it wasn't my fault. That yeah, yeah. Decided to do that. Um, so that Time was Warner's interesting. Still so around, I, by the way. So uh, they they've stood the test of time a little bit. So. Yeah, AOL and AOL exists. I mean, they got spun back out um, from Time Warner, and um, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, these things, um, you know, take their own path. But it was fascinating to be there. I worked in a group that did international business development, looking at new joint venture opportunities uh, for AOL, predominantly in Asian markets. I worked on a joint venture. Um, with Lenovo, which was at the time called Legend for the China market and did a lot of work overseas. And then um, ended up getting into venture capital after that. I mean, I had done a lot of joint venture and kind of looking at acquisitions, but from a big corporate perspective and then partnered with um, someone that I had met in Israel to invest uh, set up a new venture fund that ended up bringing me back to Cleveland to invest in early stage Israeli medical device companies, kind of pre-U.S. commercialization. Um, so launched that fund in 2006 and uh, started teaching at Case Western Reserve University first um, as an adjunct, uh, teaching a, uh, basically a venture capital entrepreneurial finance class and then taking a full-time role here in the business school and then um, most recently became the executive director of a new center that we uh, started on campus institute for entrepreneurship so again kind of a jagged story lots of different roles different perspectives on you know inside large tech companies working with startups as an investor teaching. So I've kind of, I've done a few different kinds of things. Along that journey um, from, you know, the days in South Africa to, you know, going through Microsoft and then AOL, what kind of was that, I guess, that moment where you really knew that you kind of wanted to go down that path? Because there's a lot of different ways there when you go from, you know, working with elections to, then going to big time tech companies, you know, Microsoft, one of the biggest companies in the world now. Um, what kind of really piqued your curiosity most, would you say, on that journey? You know, as I um, alluded to, like, I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do when I had come back from South Africa. And I ended up, I mean, I, I literally like showed up back from Cape Town and enrolled in Wharton and was like, what planet am I on? I mean, I was you know, Wharton has 800 full-time MBA students per class and there's 1600 full-time students, you know, most, most folks who show up there did not journey, their previous work experience was not running voter education projects and, you know, in a emerging democracy. You know, interestingly, I became close with a few other kind of weird background types, like a couple friends of mine, 
there had come from the military service. So I had a good friend that uh, was a Navy SEAL and there was a guy who you know, flew jets on aircraft carrier, you know, also very interesting, but not a traditional business background. And, you know, I was just looking for something where I liked unstructured um, based on my previous experience. I, you know, I wanted something that I seemed that was sort of fun. Yeah. Um, I liked the idea of being able to make a difference in people's lives. Although, you know, I think when you, when you make that move from nonprofit where or an NGO where, you know, the mission of what you're doing is, you know, directly, I mean, the, 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 the raison d'etre of the organization, you know, being there is like to do good work in the world. You know, interestingly, I think many companies, um, you know, have embraced a mission orientation to the work and sustainability. I and mean, there's lots of ways that that is done. Actually at, at Weatherhead, we have um, uh, something called the Fowler Center for Businesses and Asian and World Benefit, which is focused really directly on how businesses can make an impact. So I was intrigued, you know, again, this is back in, you know, 1996 when I sort of came back to the US. I was like, you know, maybe working at a company or doing something where I could have an impact. And I felt like the tech industry and the internet as it was emerging was a place where I could do that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, even when I got hired by Microsoft for my summer job, I was like, I kind of felt like I um, had tricked them into hiring me. I was like, why would they hire like some rando guy that like ran voter education programs? And actually when I talked to the, the hiring manager, he was like, yeah, no, it was obvious. Like you have, I mean, there's a lot of people in tech that have non-traditional backgrounds. And he was like, oh, you were a perfect fit for what? And I was like, wow, okay. Do you feel like nowadays, I mean, you obviously run, you know, at Case, the entrepreneurship program there, but do you feel like, and this is kind of like segueing a little bit, as you're talking, you know, you had didn't have really that quote unquote direct tech background when you broke into Microsoft. A lot of people want to work at tech companies nowadays. Like, do you feel that, you know, your kind of background helps suit you for that world because there's a lot of parallels i feel like to working in tech and you know being in south africa kind of where you know you're working on creating a democracy almost so do you kind of feel like the abstract background helps you in your career yeah i mean i think there is something about um i mean certainly the work i was doing in south africa which I, at the time i wasn't thinking it was entrepreneurship but you know i was 20 to 23 years old, you know, I had to, you know, figure out a distribution network. We were printing voter education materials for first time voters in um, 11 different languages for different parts of the country. So we were figuring out distribution and even like some of our distribution strategies like involved partnering with, like we worked with like rural healthcare clinics to distribute. I mean, it wasn't obvious, you know, how to get things to people, right? Um, so we had to be super creative. So I think that experience and that skill set of like, I mean, I think there's a little bit of like, oh, okay, if I could go run voter education programs for South Africa's first elections, I could help figure out 
you know, a go-to-market strategy for some new product at the internet gaming zone or Microsoft or some new partnership in China. Like, so I do, you know, as I, as I sit with students now and sort of try to coach people on, you know, career opportunities, there's so many things, there's so many ways that people um, can pursue opportunities, let's call it in tech broadly and startups more specifically. You know, I think that adaptability and maybe that willingness to stick yourself out there, because um, I, I didn't necessarily see it, this career choice that I had made to plant myself in South Africa for three years was going to be like a big strategic advantage when I got back to the U.S. and we yeah. trying to figure out who would hire me to do something. But no, I think it did. I mean, and you know, I mean, I, I think there there's something to be said for kind of following your passion um, and not worrying so much about what somebody else might think of it. And then when you tell when you share the learnings of it later with a potential employer or if you're an entrepreneur raising capital, I mean, you know, I mean, you're often just selling yourself. So if you can communicate clearly kind of what you learned, why you took the journey, you know, I felt, I, I felt like it, it validated. I mean, I don't know. I mean, whether, whether I was looking for validation or not, like people there was there was i mean even getting into wharton like you know i mean it's gotta be hard zero, well i had zero business experience you know yeah flying to wharton from south africa and like i wasn't thinking that i was going to get into wharton <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know i mean i was competing against a bunch of <laughs> other people with more traditional experiences so i mean i to me the lesson learned you know, as I communicate to young people now, it's like, dude, do something you're passionate about. And, you know. Did did that experience really, and, and for our listeners um, that might not be familiar, did that experience kind of lead you into creating the course Beyond Silicon Valley? Because, you know, that course is predicated on the notion that you can really get into startups and create your, um, you know, entrepreneurial background and business wherever you are. So that's what that course is really geared towards. Is that kind of what spurred that type of thought in that course, like your experience? What's funny, there was another kind of crazy international journey that um, I think built on it. I mean, I, I was the South Africa experience. I had already, even before that done, even in college, I had, I was like one of the first American teachers to show up in the former Czechoslovakia when I was in college. I had done worked in a refugee camp for Russian Jews immigrating when I was in college. Like I, I was always interested in international. And then kind of fast forward, I moved back to Cleveland. I um, had kids and I, but I always wanted to take my family overseas. I hadn't really kind of figured out when or where to do that and in 2012 i got a fulbright fellowship and fulbright is a u.s government um program that allows um so i'd actually heard of it but i didn't really know exactly what it was but they have a program for for students um to and it's 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 not it's an exchange per se but like they they allow there's opportunities for u.s 
professors and students to, to study or teach overseas is also opportunities for some of your listeners maybe encountered a Fulbrighter in their own university. So there's, pro there's opportunities for foreign um, students and professors to do it in the US. Obviously I, I did the, the US out and I, um, I ended up getting a Fulbright to teach entrepreneurship in Hanoi, Vietnam. So I moved my family there in 2012. Our kids were third grade, second grade and kindergarten. And uh, it was a little bit of a, I don't know, midlife crisis isn't exactly the word because I wasn't, hopefully it wasn't the midpoint. But I was like, hey, let's go do this. And, yeah. Um, so we moved and I ended up getting a, um, a request while I was there from within the Vietnamese government. They have a ministry for science and technology. And within that ministry, there's the National Agency for Technology, Entrepreneurship and Commercialization. And they asked me to do a workshop about how um, Vietnam could sort of become more like Silicon Valley. And I ended up, and I'd actually never even lived in San Francisco. And I was like, oh, you know, what about, and at that point, actually, I had gotten involved in the ecosystem a little bit here in Cleveland. And I was like, you know, you guys look a little bit more like Cleveland than you do Silicon Valley, which I think they probably were like insulted by, but they're like, what does Cleveland have to do with entrepreneurship? And I'm like, you know, you know, hey, we had this journey. We were once great in entrepreneurship when we had John Rockefeller and, you know, we've fallen on harder times, but then through government and, and philanthropic or donor support combined with the private sector, like we've kind of grown our ecosystem and we've done it in a variety of different ways through act, you know, additional venture capital, things like a program called the Ohio Capital Fund, which actually my own venture fund had tapped into. There's support for angel investing. There's support for accelerators. There's even like yeah. on our campus at Case Western Reserve University, there's a program through um, a state of Ohio um, uh, initiative called the Ohio Third Frontier, which is a, a government support of, of commercialization and entrepreneurship. So that and in, in, in the Ohio program, primarily through the Ohio Third Frontier, was like done in a really, I thought, thoughtful way that um, required matching funding. So it wasn't all government money. So I ended up doing a workshop in Vietnam for the government that involved, it was funny, um, now that we're, everybody lives on Zoom or Skype. In, in 2012, I used Skype to bring in guest speakers. Since I was in Hanoi into this workshop um, to kind of communicate some of the things that we had done there. And then that, when I got back home and, and actually Case Western Reserve had just signed on as a partner with Coursera and was developing their first MOOCs, these massive open online courses, the, the direct inspiration for what became this Beyond Silicon Valley course was this workshop in Vietnam but to some degree, like my move to Vietnam was um, like my time in South Africa, all these other kind of international experiences that kind of, you know, were, were set me on that path. Has, and, I, and I'm very interested to hear your, your take on this, obviously. Um, is it, there's a notion that like, especially if you want to create a tech company, especially here in the U.S., you go, you go to San Francisco, you go to Silicon Valley because that's where a lot of money is. That's where 
you know, a lot of obviously companies have started. That's where you find people that can help you build. Do you think like you have to go there or do you think now as you know, we've been in a pandemic where you really can't, you know, gather, you, there's no real point in going to, you know, a certain area. Do you feel like you can be as successful starting a company outside of Silicon Valley and kind of ties into, you know, creating that course? Like, do you think you can be as successful? Yeah, I mean, I think this is certainly an interesting year to kind of look at this hypothesis that, um, you know, you can be anywhere and start a company. I mean, you know, obviously this is a year where so many of us have been working remotely in a variety or you know, teaching remotely, studying remotely, working remotely. And, um, you know, I think it's certainly accelerated. I mean, there are companies um, that have used distributed workforces for many years or remote workforces, but, but many of the companies like, actually on the distributed side, there's a company called Automatic, which um, sort of over owns WordPress. Um, a friend of mine who's an alum of Case Western Reserve was living in San Francisco working for Adobe and moved, ended up moving back to Cleveland pre-pandemic to work for Automatic because Automatic doesn't even have a headquarters. So it's a totally distributed workforce. Um, and it was funny, I remember at the time, like, I was like, ooh, that's, that's really interesting, you know, like, and, um, you know, again, remote, particularly in the tech world, I mean, lots of companies have taken advantage of tech talent in other parts of the world. I think this, pa I mean, this, this past year, I think has shown opportunities for companies to really think differently about, you know, where their folks are located and, and productivity. I mean, on one level, I think we're all really, many of us are enthusiastic to get back to in-person interactions with colleagues, with students. Um, but this, you know, th this may be a moment, I mean, you're already starting to see it. I mean, you know, I think this combination of the cost of living and working in places like San Francisco versus a place like Cleveland or Akron, you know, in Northeast Ohio. I mean, obviously it's not comparable. It's not a lot cheaper here. Um, but you know, what was interesting for many years is like, I think folks thought that just the cost of living alone was enough to drive companies or talent to places like Cleveland, but it wasn't right. You need, um, more support for companies. And, you know, I think on the, the access to capital side, you know, hey, there's still a ton of capital in San Francisco's Silicon Valley, right? I mean, that's where the venture capital firms are. And, you know, many investors want to be driving distance or walking distance, you know, to their portfolio, you know, there's still, yeah. there's this belief that you want to be close to your portfolio. And when you're in a flyover state like Ohio, it's hard to get people to kind of land here. Now that is changing. I mean, you start to see like drive capital in Columbus, which is started by some, um, some folks that came from the Bay area here, you know, this, this investment thesis that like there are good companies to invest in in the Midwest and people are making money. I mean, we just had 
an exit right here in Cleveland this week, a company called Wiser, which was um, co-founded by uh, Case Western Reserve University alum. So, you know, the proof is really in companies exiting and, and you know, and it's mostly going to take place in the um, acquisition market, although there's a few IPOs and, you know, founders making money, investors making money, and that kind of feeds itself. So I think, you know, we've certainly made progress. I mean, it's not just Cleveland. I mean, other cities in the Midwest with really interesting startups. So as those founders and their investors make money and then deploy it back into new ventures, it starts to build on itself. So, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful that places like Cleveland are poised to even do better. And I think the pandemic perhaps is, is going to speed things up. That's, that's really interesting, especially, you know, I feel like universities are going to play a huge part in that. Um, you, Cause if you think about it, that's where a lot of innovation is spurred when you get to meet people that, you know, think similarly and you have access to resources to actually develop and build um, what kind of, you know, programs at case are kind of leading towards um, that decentralized workforce, but also, you know, preparing potentially for, it's not really urban flight, but it's almost flight from certain cities to different areas. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, it's been fun and somewhat entrepreneurial to be leading, you know, which is essentially kind of a startup institute for entrepreneurship on our campus. And um, we were supported with a, a generous um, gift from the Veal Foundation. And, you know, what I was really pleased with was that our donors, you know, gave me and colleagues like a lot of leeway. It's like, how best um, should our new institute look to support the growth of entrepreneurship on our campus and in the community? And, you know, we're trying a bunch of different things. Um, and in the spirit of, you know, being entrepreneurial, some of them are working quite well and some of them aren't working at all. So, um, you know, we're, we're trying to be nimble. I mean, we, we have really at a place like Cape Western Reserve where we have, you know, over $400 million a year in sponsored research, mostly from the federal government. Um, that creates a real, um, you know, a huge opportunity to see, you know, while the grants are coming in, not for um, the commercial potential of the research, there's clearly, you know, for some of the research, quite a bit of opportunity um, to commercialize. And, and, you know, for folks that may be listening that aren't, don't have a lot of experience with kind of the university tech transfer process, there are two ways that, that, that technology kind of spins out of a university into the marketplace. One, and, and it's the most common way is through a licensing process. So um, a large strategic would come and license a technology out of a university and, and uh, you know, they see something they like and they have all the, you know, the, the sales and marketing teams and their own research team, you know, you sort of stick a technology from a university into a Medtronic or a Johnson & Johnson or a Boston Scientific or, you know, 
name the company. And then that then provides some licensing revenue back to the university. Another way that this commercialization process can happen that we at the Vienna Institute are most involved with is creating a startup. Um, and, you know, creating a startup is, is a challenge, you know, it's startups, the success of a startup is often, while the underlying technology or intellectual property is, is usually critically important, like the people that are running the company, if you talk to venture capitalists, like are you investing in the idea or the people? I'd say more often than not, investors are investing because of the people. So if we have a great technology, how do we bring the right people from the outside to, um, you know, to sort of launch this new thing? And um, what do you think, and going to that people versus technology, what, what do you think is harder if you're creating a startup <laughs> to actually create, create technology or to build the right team that can actually execute on the technology you built? I think it's more team because um, there's lots of great technologies that just like never see the light of day for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's, um, I mean, stuff's hard. I mean, building successful ventures is really tough. I mean, oftentimes, you know, you have, it's timing and luck, right? So there's that, which, you know, you can't really manage, but, you know, my experience has been getting that right leader of a startup that can adjust appropriately to, you know, market opportunities is really critical. And uh, so, you know, back to the question you asked before, even around talent, I mean, this is an interesting moment. It's like, let's say we're sitting in Cleveland, Case Western Reserve, and we have a company, you know, you can you build the company here, but maybe the talent sits in somewhere else, you know, does your leader need to sit here? So I think, you know, this past year and the pandemic has sort of shown us that work can be done differently, but you know, still, I think there's a lot of open questions about, you know, where talent needs to sit and then how do you attract the right talent? But yeah, I mean, to your very specific question, I'm more of a team, I'm a team over technology, you know, from an investment point of view, I think that's the most critical. So if you were to give advice to someone that theoretically wanted to create a startup, uh, we'll, we'll say they wanted to create a tech startup. What, what kind of advice would you give them? Like, would it be find people that can complement your skills first? Or would it be, you know, let's say they already have an idea. What, what would be that next step in executing on that idea to actually see the light of day? Because you've had the unique experience of, you know, being, in, I mean, we'll say like Microsoft and AOL when you got in were pretty early, especially because of, you know, that's when the dot-com uh, era really started. Um, and you've also had the experience of going through a VC route. So what would that next step be if someone wanted to create one after they, you know, got the idea? Yeah. You know, I mean, this, um, even the journey to attract capital, um, you know, like Y Combinator, which is, you know, one of the best known accelerators. Um, and I'm pretty sure they, they don't, they still require um, 
that founders recruit a co-founder, right? So like there's like Dropbox is a famous story. I mean, Drew Houston came up with the idea, like sitting on a bus, you know, he didn't have the memory stat, whatever it was, you know, lost something. And then I forget the exact process by which he met his um, co-founder who had a technical background. I mean, Drew, I think was an MIT graduate, but not a, didn't have a technical background. And um, so this kind of founder dating or founder matching, I think is really interesting. And it speaks to, I think, you know, folks finding talent that complements what they bring. Um, and particularly for tech-based startups, like, having somebody, having folks very early in the journey that can talk the business talk, but can talk the technical talk. Um, so, so, you know, and, you know, and I've also seen that the hard part, I mean, so everything's hard, but finding then the, and then resourcing it properly. So it's like, you know, it's hard to attract talent when you don't have any money. Um, so kind of there's a timing piece of this as well. You have this idea, you bring together the talent, you go out to the market to start pitching. Um, you know, and oftentimes in, in even places like Cleveland, there are, you know, there's pitch competitions and, and sometimes grants. I mean, there's not what we call non-dilutive sources of capital. So you don't have to give up any ownership of your company for some of the, you know, if you win a pitch competition or a prize or something or a grant, you know, but at some point, as you look to raise outside capital, you're going to have to give up ownership. And, um, you know, what are you doing before you kind of go to market to build the team to give investors that confidence that you've got the right combination of skills and perspective to be successful in this, you know, what will be undoubtedly a very difficult journey. Yeah, I, that that's incredible advice, especially because I feel like now more than ever, tech has been cool. And I say that like it coincides almost with the stock market where you see more investors coming in than ever before, uh, you know, case in point GameStop and, you know, people on Reddit and whatnot. And so I feel like tech has never been cooler and more people want to create something than ever before. And so I feel like this pandemic is almost just similar to how, you know, 99 spurred, you know, the dot-com boom. I feel like you might see a lot of startups here, you know, that turn into those next big companies, you know, 10, 20 years down the line. It's because people now, you know, think it's cool to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think um, there is a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, interestingly, throughout the pandemic, venture capital as an asset class is growing, right? So there's, you know, even more money, high valuations being put into tech. Um, I think there's confidence that we're going to get out of this and, you know, with vaccine rollout picking up, um, you know, obviously we're all enthusiastic about kind of what the future holds. And, you know, and the fact that even the public markets pretty much shaken off. I mean, I think they went, you know, it was like a 25% dip in the markets and they like, it, it sort of roared back. So there, there is 
confidence in the future and particularly, you know, venture capital because of the cycles, you know, your venture capitalist is typically investing, you know, in the first couple of years of their fund, you know, with an eye towards an exit, you know, in kind of year five to seven or maybe even longer. So, you know, you're, you're putting capital to work now, building teams and product with an eye towards a future exit. So, you know, there's a lot of confidence, you know, maybe it's misplaced confidence or overconfidence, but um, there's a lot of capital out there. So I, yeah, I think it's a really good time for, you know, young people that are one, an exciting career, want to work on, you know, potentially something with meeting. I mean, we just had a speaker in class um, two weeks ago. She's a friend of mine. Actually, we were Microsoft interns together. She's the head of marketing at Impossible Foods, um, mission-oriented, you know, plant-based meat products, you know, with a focus on climate change. I mean, I think also a lot of young people um, in a very inspiring way are like want meaning in their work. And they want their companies that they're working for or the products to be have an impact on the world, not just making money. So that that's really great. Like, and there's a lot of interesting choices out there. And in some ways, like as young people demand that of their employers, that's a good thing, right? Because it's, it's starting to shit, you know. I mean, if employers want to hire talent, um, They've got to be a great place to work. And this mission piece of it is, is I think, growingly important. Michael, so I kind of want to segue and kind of get into our finishing topic here with, you know, Case Western. I'm from Cleveland area. Obviously, you're at Case, but it's one of the best universities in the country. It's, you know, extremely prestigious. And so for someone that you know, maybe they're like in high school or someone that, you know, is in college that really is, you know, interested in entrepreneurship in that road or route, you know, what kind of tools, let's say, you know, they want to, you know, further their education, you know, potentially look at Case Western or they're interested in what you've talked about and they kind of want to see, you know, your track more. So like, where could they see not just your resources, but, you know, look more into Case and your program and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, welcome. Anybody listening wants to come attend our university. We'd love to have you. Um, I mean, hey, there's a lot of great opportunities in higher education for students at the undergraduate and graduate level um, to get involved in entrepreneurship. I mean, in fact, like when I was in college, it's kind of, you know, I mean, we didn't have entrepreneurship centers. And I mean, I went to Princeton undergrad. Um, and we don't, even, we don't have a business school there, but like Princeton has like some really awesome entrepreneurship stuff now that we didn't have then. So I think you've seen because of the growing interest among students in entrepreneurship um, and actually the success of a lot of alums, because um, many, many of the centers and institutes at, at um, you know, universities in the US and even around the world have names associated with them. Often those names are alums that have been, you know, extremely successful and generous, you know, but they were, their success was in entrepreneurship. So it's, I think it's a fun time to be on, on a campus 
And in a place like Case Western Reserve, like we have an awesome maker space called Thinkbox, which, you know, has seven floors and hotel offices and, you know, every type of tinkering tool you could imagine from, you know, wood shop to 3D printers to laser cutters to sewing machines. But, you know, the reality of many startups is like they don't need necessarily a laser cutter or a 3D printer, but they need help with their app. And so we're, you know, I think there's these ways that we're trying to get collisions between students and alums. I mean, in the past year, it's a lot of Zoom collisions and programming, but um, I think it's a great time to be a young person. I mean, interestingly, you know, if you have high school listeners, I mean, there's a lot of stuff at high school level in a way that certainly we never had. So, and then there's like a ton of web resources. I mean, like my Beyond Silicon Valley classes on Coursera, it's a free class. My book is a free book. You know, you can put links to all these things, hopefully um, to folks. I mean, just a lot of free stuff that's out there. Um, and I think there's a certain ethos in the entrepreneurship space about entrepreneurs just wanting to help each other. And that's the thing I tell my students, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram, I mean, it's pretty easy to get in touch with people. I mean, so I always encourage my own students to be bold and network. I mean, if there's some product or service you love, you know, tweet at the CEO or somebody, you know, be like, oh, I love Square. I love, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, I, I think the, um, those proactive students or young people that are like, you know, particularly if, it, if, if you're going a route of not necessarily starting something yourself, but just wanting to get involved and work for a cool company. Like if you're passionate about a company, go find, try to find an opportunity there. Also don't wait to look for a job posting. I mean, I think oftentimes the best opportunities don't come through formal posts. It's like, you gotta go seek it out. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, is I think we're at the point where this vaccine, a lot of people are going to start getting it. You're going to start seeing a cycle where more and more openings are going to come up. So creating that relationship now with, you know, kind of like how I have with you, but also with, um, you know, reaching out to recruiters, reaching out to people that had teams at certain companies, even if there's not an opening, you've built that relationship. So when there is an opening, you'll be the first person they think of. So I think that's a great strategy to think of. Completely agree. It's funny because I see it all the time with my students. I mean, it's obvious to me the like, you know, because it's always a small, let's say it's that 5% of students that just kind of networks the heck out of the relationships that are, you know, at the almost where the university where they're at, you know, they're, they're not, I mean, yes, it's easy to fill out an application online for a job, but that's not that's just one piece of the puzzle. And frankly, my students that just fill out online application, I mean, that's not usually a recipe for the most compelling jobs, if any jobs. Totally agree. Well, Michael, uh, you've provided a ton of insight today, uh, a ton of insight to myself, our listeners. Um, we really appreciate it. I, I truly appreciate it. And Hopefully we can have you on here again soon. We're, we're getting real jam-packed with a lot of 
you know, awesome guests. So we're really happy that you were able to, uh, you know, come along and, uh, you know, take part in this. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, well, you have a great weekend and uh, thank you everyone for listening.